This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. Welcome to part two of our conversation with the legendary Jerry Eisenberg. His 70 years as a sports writer, yes, 70, couldn't be contained in one hour. If you haven't listened to part one, check it out. It's a hoot. In part one, Jerry shared stories from his worldwide travels with Muhammad Ali. They met in 1960, and Jerry tagged along for every stop of the Ali Circus. Jerry took us with him in his unique style of storytelling, and in his second and final part of our conversation, Jerry tells stories about other memorable moments and athletes from his illustrious career. And what a career! What a life! Strap in, hang on, here we go. Jerry Eisenberg is on the show, and I couldn't be more excited or happy about that because we are talking to an absolute legend in the sports writing business, sports media. 70 years ago, you joined the Star Ledger as a copy boy. It's amazing. 91 years old, young, I should say. I heard you turned in your driver's license, though. Yeah, I walked into the... uh, I'm living in Henderson, Nevada now, in exile. And um, somebody said, oh, the mountains are pretty. I said, no, they're my prison bars. Anyway, I walked into, uh, I walked into uh, the motor vehicle. I said to the lady, here, take this. This is my gift to the people of Henderson. It's safe to drive again. It's my license. <laughs> well, I think you drive better than people in my neighborhood, Jerry. And then I don't want to be in your neighborhood. <laughs> well, yeah. well, it'd be better. It would be better neighborhood if you were here, Jerry. Hey, thanks a lot for joining us. You retired, they say, quotes, retired from daily work in 2006. But I know that's not true. I know you're still writing. You're the columnist emeritus for the Star-Ledger in Newark, your hometown. And not only that, not only do you write for the paper and for NJ.com, the paper's website, but Jerry, in 2020, you released a novel, your first novel. Yeah, that was ahead of my bucket list. I I desperately wanted to write a novel. Well, a newspaper man, you were one of the most prestigious sports writers dating since 1951. Jerry, 1951, there wasn't even rock and roll in 1951. You were writing for the Star Ledger. (laughs) Your career is an amazing, uh, the list of things that you have done in your career, you covered the first 53 Super Bowls, 55 Kentucky Derbies. You covered more Muhammad Ali fights than anyone dating back to the 1960 Rome Olympics. Jerry, when you think back and reflect on all of that in totality, 70 years. How do you sum that up? Sooner or later, I'm going to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and it'll probably be a different profession if you could. Now, you know, it's hard to talk about newspapers. We have really fallen on hard times. Right. Today, if I were asked by if my children were young again, 
And they said, Daddy, what do you do for a living? I would try to find something a little more prestigious and acceptable. I'd probably tell them I was a towel man in a bordello. <laughs> uh, because, because it's just, it ain't what it used to be. I, I know I, sound like, I suffer from old fartism, the good old days. But I'll tell you something, the good old days were pretty bad, too. I was born when the Depression started. I never lived in a house with a lock on the door until I came back from Korea. Right. Uh, It's just the way it worked. Well, think about this. I mean, it was such a prestigious career that you earned the reputation that you are in 16 halls of fame. Jerry, 16. Do you have a stock speech? One of the ones that (laughs) was one of the ones that meant the most to me. I don't walk very well today. I couldn't go back for it. And that was the New Jersey State Hall of Fame induction. Yeah. And and Greg Fiano, the Rutgers coach, uh, he took it for me. And... uh, uh, we spoke. We spoke on the phone once, and he said, "No, I'll do it. I'll do it." And he told some great stories about me. Some of them were even true. But <laughs> one of the good things about it was, uh, I said to him, I called him the morning I, of the thing, and I said, "Greg, he was in New Jersey, and I was in Henderson, Nevada." I said, "You got to do one more thing. I didn't tell you about. Um, you'll be given a copy of my acceptance speech. You're going to read it, mm. Greg. Don't fuck it up." <laughs> and he was really terrific. He really was. And he told this story about me, uh, which guy, he tells this story all the time. We, we, were, we, we were friendly, but I can't, I now realize what a, how friendly we were now that it's all over. Oh, now you do. Yeah. Yeah, now I do, but not at the time. And, and, and it's his second year, he's playing, second, third year, he's playing a division to school, and they beat him. Right, right. And we're in the press conference, and he didn't have any players. He didn't inherit any players. We're in a press conference in his room, and I don't say a word. I'm just sitting there with my arms folded, and he's looking at me because he knows I'm the bomb thrower, I guess, and <laughs> I don't ask a question, nothing. Right. I, I get up, and I walk over. He tells his story freely. I walk over to him, and I say, Greg, uh, as thin-skinned as you are, I'm going to recommend to you, don't read the paper tomorrow because you really screwed up and I'm going to lay it all out there. Right. That's your job. He said to me, nothing I read at the time, but he told that story when he took the Tampa Bay job, he told that story to the writers there. And he said, so that's what he did. And he said, that's what I expect from you guys, honesty and truth and blah, blah, blah. And Jerry Eisberg did it. And, blah, blah. and he told me the story. And I said, Greg, you know, thank you very much. There were eight guys in a room. You made eight enemies for me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, 16 Halls of Fame, the National Sportscaster and Sports Writers Hall of Fame. You won the Red Smith Award from the AP Sports, Sports Editors. You have to be the only Red Smith Award winner who actually sat next to Red Smith, right? And in 1959, late 50s, early 60s, when you worked at the New York Herald Tribune, you actually sat next to Red Smith. Well, a lot of guys did that in press boxes, but at work, I did it. Right. And, and he, uh, he encouraged me to take the column job. You know, th- th- there was something, the guy who really encouraged me the most in my life, I had three fathers. They're not equal. My father is my father and former minor league ball player and led by example, a great man. Then I went to the Herald Tribune and I had Stanley Woodward, the greatest editor, not sports editor, the greatest editor that ever lived. Toughest guy, strongest physically guy I knew. And, uh, 
whenever he wanted me to do something that I, he knew I didn't want to do, the Herald Tribune had a bar in the lobby, the only newspaper in Israel. That's why I loved it. Oh, hell yeah. Who it wouldn't? Bla- it was called Blake's Artists and Writers. And every time he was going to give me an assignment he knew I didn't want, he'd say, let's go get a drink. we go down there. He'd reach over the bar. He'd get a bottle of wild turkey. I mean, I, that's, I, I, I stopped drinking that. So I said, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I can't drink it anymore. <laughs> he put a bottle down. He got two water glasses. Filled up. He said, finish that glass and we're going to talk. So I, I was screwed. I mean, whatever it was, I had to do. Right. One day he brings me down there and he says, you better take two drinks. I'm so happy that you're going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame and you're going to be on the, your plaque will be on the wall with Papa's. Oh, that's nice. But I got to tell you something. I should have told you when he was alive. When the pain got to be too much, I would sit on the edge of his bed and I would talk to him about the two things other than my mother that he loved. One was college football. The other was newspapers. And one day I said to him, Papa, when it's all over, you know, who's going to be the best you ever had? He said, she said and he said to me, I can't answer that at this moment, but if I were a betting man, I'd have to say within a year, it's going to be Jerry Eisenberg. Mm-hmm. I never, I was so, uh, you know, I, I kept the letter. I was, I was so, I used that letter when I got inducted and I said, I'm an imposter, but if you're going to accept me, he's the guy that made it possible for you to accept me. So wow. he's my second father. My third father was a fight trainer, not a fight trainer, a genius. 22 champions, Ray Arcel, uh, magnificent man. And, and he could, he could, he didn't have to yell at anybody. He never raised his voice in his life. Died at 94, stopped training at 84. He gets off the train. He's coming to visit me. I got a little house on the seashore. Uh, Mr. Suburbanite is going to go pick him up. And I got a little heavier while I hadn't seen him. He cuts off the train. He looks at me. Hmm. He looks at my stomach more properly, <laughs> and he says, Ugh. that's all he says. <laughs> but the look is the look of a Talmudic scholar whose kid has, student has screwed up the blessing over food four straight times, and he doesn't know what to do. I would not see him again until I lost 15 pounds. That's how influential he was with me. And the kind of guy he was, I remember that weekend, he's sitting on the porch and he's reading my column. And it's about Don King, with whom I've had a squabble, right? Mm, imagine that. And yeah, it's hard to believe, but you know. So anyway, he's sitting there, and all, he's not speaking. He's reading. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> then he puts the paper down. He says, "Jerry, promise me before I die, one favor." You'll never get mad at me. <laughs> right. So you get this break to become the Star Ledger columnist in 1962, and you have since written 10,000 columns. Yeah, um, if you want to understate it, I, I don't know. Because remember, in the old days, we used to have to write two columns a day. Right. I mean, you were writing you were writing four or five a week, you know, for years and years and years. I was writing every day. I was writing five— uh, five days a week and then four days a week. But when you had a night event, they had this silly idea. You had to do an early column. You didn't know who won the game. You didn't know what was going on. Right. But you had to do an early. Bulldog edition. Yeah, Yeah. but you had to do that early column. So that made two columns. And uh, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I said something to someone the other day. 
Someone said, do you know it's a shame you can't keep writing forever? And I said, who says I can't? You're still going. <laughs> Until I get other evidence, I'll keep on writing. But I'll tell you this. I told a guy, I said, you know, look at the life I'm having. Not had, but I'm having. I'm the only sports writer I know who ever spent a whole day with Nelson Mandela. Amazing. I'm a guy who George Foreman called up at 4 a.m. in the morning and said, I'm going to make a comeback. And I said, turn yourself in at the hospital. Is something wrong? <laughs> uh, and we, I speak to George maybe once a month now. Um, Ali and I, of course, that was a friendship that was right. I mean, to get to know those people on that basis. Is, and one thing, another thing about I never understood this. George Foreman was worse than Tyson when he was a young man. Horrible guy. We're very close friends. Horrible guy. He never gave me any shit. He always confided in me. Sonny, listen, I don't have to give you his background. Always confided in me. Tyson always confided in me. Why is that? I don't know. It's, I mean, something wrong with me, maybe. I never thought about that. You, you know, why would they, you know, if I'm a kindred spirit between the way they were then, uh, uh, what's his name came back from that, Tyson, but the, Sonny and I got to be good friends. Sonny probably didn't have many friends. The guys that I met, they, so now there was Liston, and Liston was great with me. And George was great. And um, Tyson, I call up Tyson. He's going to fight Michael Spinks, which I think that was the greatest moment of his career by far. Even though he got no opposition, it was the greatest moment. And I want to go down and talk to him. And I like to talk to guys alone. And I've been around long enough. They think they feel obligated. I can get them alone. I, don't, I never go to these mass press conferences. So... I call up and I get Rooney on the phone who was training him then. He was drunk. And he says, uh, Mike ain't talking to you. I said, really? What are you, his translator? And you work for the UN? I don't know, how does this work? <laughs> he said, he ain't talking to you because the press has been unfair to Mike and we're not talking to you. I said, well, let me tell you something, asshole. The press does not have one head, two arms, and two legs. If you want to say that Jerry Eisenberg is unfair to Mike, that's your opinion. I have no quarrel with you. Don't lump me with those other assholes. I am me. They are them. So you tell him, if he doesn't want to talk to me, he can go fuck himself. And I hang up. Phone rings five minutes later. It's Rooney again. Uh, Mike says if you come to Atlantic City on Thursday, uh, he'll talk to you after, he, after the last workout. All right. I go down here. Now, as luck would have it, we hire a new boxing writer. And I am so glad, because if he hadn't been sitting next to me, I couldn't have written a column that I wrote. On the other side of me is Bill Gilday, a really fine writer from the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. He's retired now. Yeah, excellent writer, yeah. So we're sitting in the showroom at, at Trump Plaza where he trains. And uh, I said to the kid we hired, listen, when I go upstairs to the dressing room, you come with me because this guy's going to be around a while and you need to meet him. You have not been met him. So Gilday says, you know, I never met him either. Would it, be, would it be okay? I said, sure, come on. Thank God they were there. I would have had no column. We go up there and they're looking at him. They're not going to ask him a question. They're terrified. So I figure I'll throw him a softball and then I'll get to what I want to know. I said, so Mike, where do you run in the morning? He said, on a golf course? He said, no, no, I run on a boardwalk. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but there's people out there. They say, good luck, Mike, you know, the way he talks. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, 
And I waved to them, and they waved to me. And uh, I said, well, wh- well, what do you think about when you're running? You're thinking about this fight? Oh, this fight's easy. No, I don't think I hear Cuss's voice, the motto, um, things he used to tell me. And I said, you mean like this? And I imitated Cuss. Cuss had a voice that sounded like the old days in Indianapolis when they all had Offenhauser engines and they whine when they, when they went by you. That's what Cuss sounded like. <laughs> and he laughed and I laughed and he said, yeah. He said, we had fun. He said, you know, because I met him when he was 12. He said, you know, um, it's no fun anymore. It's the money, the money, the money. Why did Cuss have to die? Why did Jimmy Jacobs have to die on me? Why did, and then he puts his head on my chest and he starts to cry. Wow. So heavily, I had to put my, he's younger than my grand, my kids. I put my arms around him. I said, calm down, calm down. He, he walked away from me, looked out the window, came back, we finished the interview. Wow, Tyson's crying on your chest. If wow. those guys weren't there, who would have believed this happened? But they were there. And I used their names in the column, of course. And I, I started the column by saying, the heavyweight champion of the world, the toughest man on the planet, cried yesterday. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I thought, geez, you want to forget that, right? When he did The Undisputed Truth, his book that became a play, mm-hmm. um, he used the anecdote. I was, and he praised me. I was stunned, you know? So Mike Tyson cried on your chest. That's amazing. Uh, I could live without that kind of praise, you know. And, uh, Steve Lott had, became the heir to all these photo things that Kate owned and he sold to ESPN. But the photographs went to Steve Lott. So he, Steve said, you know what? I'll give you whatever you want for your boxing book. They're in a boxing book, most of them. But you got to do two things. You got to do one thing for me. You got to give me an autograph book for me and an autograph book for Mike. Oh, that, that's easy, sure. I don't hear from him. Books out. I don't hear from him about five months. I call up. Hey, did you ever give Mike that book? He said, "No, I'm going over there to give it to him today. We had an argument. And we stopped talking, but I'm going to give it to him today." Right? Later that day, the phone rings. Mister Eisenberg, and I said, "Yeah, Mike." He said, "How did you know it was me?" I said, "I took a lucky guess, Mike. You know." He said. Uh, um, I'm so excited and so thrilled that you would that you would write that dedication to me in the book, uh, handwritten. You know, um, I, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, but uh, he said, "I guess I'm just so excited. I can't wait to read the book, uh, Mike. I wrote the book. Believe me, you can wait to read it. There might be some parts you might not like." Hmm. Wonder if he ever read it. He ne- oh, he would read it. Oh, he, he read in prison all the time. Don King and he were big readers. Uh, the only thing King talked to me to not reading was the contracts King gave him. Yeah, exactly. But but what he did yeah. was what he did was um, he did use it, and uh, we we got we got along pretty well. Jerry, you you covered everything. Well, why was boxing the thing that seemed to strike the curve? I am surprised at you. How many people are in the boxing ring when the fight takes place? Two. No, three. No, the ref. Three. And I never saw the referee hit anybody, so essentially, I got two guys. Whatever they do, I can write whatever I want. Then, if I need more, 
I got a guy who fixes cuts in one in both corners, and I got the trainer in both corners. If I can't get, I don't know enough about the guy that I can put his, what he's done in perspective what he did that night, I shouldn't be doing it. That's why I like it. Or you could say, well, what about tennis? Well, it's pretty hard. Uh, you know, the ball goes back and forth. The headlinesman doesn't, the umpire doesn't mean anything. And, you know, and there's nobody else you can fall back on. Boxing is, a, you know, boxing is the easiest sport to fake, the hardest sport to get right, and the most satisfying when you do. Because, first of all, boxing fans don't know anything. They know numbers. They know how many fights the guy won. They know when he fought this guy. They know where it was, where I probably have forgotten where it was. But they don't know what they're seeing. Think, you know, they, things happen pretty fast. Why, why do you get so many bad decisions from judges? I'm not counting the corrupt ones. They're bought, so you know why you get there. What about the others who make bad decisions? You know why? They don't see body punches. Mm-hmm. They don't see body punches. Everybody's a headhunter. And today they're all headhunters, so it's very easy. What you do with body punches, we may not show up till the seventh round, but it'll show up. Of all the things you covered in sports, was there anything like when the two fighters were walking towards the ring? No, it was my second biggest thrill in sports. What was your first? I knew you were going to ask that, sucker. Uh, my biggest thrill was the days before Wrigley Field put in lights, and I was between marriages, and I knew a girl who had her own apartment in Chicago. And when the schedule came out, I would circle the three-day games in Chicago, and, and my biggest thrills were in Chicago with that woman who was married, <laughs> older than me, no problem. Ah, and beyond that, I had one other thrill. I had one other thrill that I put in the category, but it's really last. Choo Choo Coleman is warming up one of the Mets' horrible pitchers in their first year in business. Howard Cosell is standing behind Choo Choo Coleman. George, what a moron he was, <laughs> doing a stand-up. And, of course, the ball gets away from Choo Choo and hits Harold in the ankle, in which he, whoo, he woofs like a dog. And I said, that's got to be on the list, greatest choice in sports. <laughs> so you're telling us about the first fight you ever recovered. At the Tribune. At the Tribune. So Jesse goes to Stanley. He says, Stanley, you're killing me. You got me doing track and field. You got me doing college football. You got me doing the, uh, boxing. I mean, I can't do everything. Let the kid do the club fights, and I'll take him with me for the big fights, and we'll teach him, and you'll have a fight right eventually. So now he says, okay, you're going to go to um, St. Nick's Arena. Mm-hmm. And you're going to cover a fight between a guy. They didn't have to have championship fights to sell out in New York then. You're going to cover a fight between a guy from the Lower East Side who's fighting the welterweight champion of Pennsylvania. Well, what the fuck do I know? I've covered two fights in New Jersey, <laughs> and, and that was it. I don't know. The, the welterweight champion. I'm covering the title fight. How many welterweights are there even in Pennsylvania? He's, he's a welterweight champion. I'm going to be my pro. Big shot. I'm going to impress him all because it's a title fight, right? So I go out there, and the guy from the Lower East Side was a pigeon fancier. At that point, there was right. a, in, New, in New York, there's a lot of guys would bet on which pigeons got to the roost first, and all that. it was a big thing. And a lot of fighters did it. Tyson just stepped into it. So this guy's a pigeon fancier. His fans come in, right? They come in and yelling, you know, 
he comes in, they open their jackets, they got pigeons inside their jackets. And pigeons head for the sky. But between the sky and them is a thing called a ceiling. <laughs> they don't get there. <laughs> now I'm getting ready for this fight and they're getting the introductions. And all of a sudden I hear splat. I look at my copy paper. They have shit on my, what I'm writing. <laughs> you know, today I'd say that it's a critique of what I had written, but they shit again. Now the bell rings, the bell rings, and all of a sudden, splat, my head. <laughs> the two fighters are, are, are caught in all this, and they both go down. They slip, and they both fall. They fall in the pigeon I'm shit. Going, I, you know, I, sorry, so now I got my arm. I'm wiping the pigeon shit off the copy paper. I'm trying to, trying to make it work, and <laughs> it's over, right? There was a guy sat next to me named, his name was Visconti. We called him the Count. He was always, see, this, you didn't have any other way to send then. He was a Morse code guy. And we had a Morse code guy in the office. Oh, my God. He would hear it on the phone, <laughs> click, 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 and he would type it up. And, he, and Visconti later saved my ass because I was a terrible writer. I thought I was hot shit. And, you know, he would make changes. And he wouldn't tell me anything. But, he, oh, I said, but now... I pull the thing out of the typewriter. It's terrible. You can be, but it's legible. I hold it like this and I hand it to him. He said, What's this? I said, That's my copy. You got to say, He said, I ain't saying that shit. I don't even want to touch it. He, I said, You got, I'm in the New York Herald Tribune. You got to say, He said, New York. You said, New York. Anyway, the fucking subways are running and so are the cabs. Take it and go to your office. I'm not touching it. <laughs> we later became big friends. I walk into the office and I hand this thing to the slot man who looks at it. What's, he doesn't even take it from me. He's looking at it. He's sniffing and he said, what is this? I said, that's my story. He said, no, it isn't. And he went into the wastebasket. He said, I'll put something in its place. And I've often said when that ever comes up in the middle of a speech, I do a lot of speaking, or I used to, I tell him, the first thing boxing taught me that night was humility. Yep. They didn't run it. You gotta run it. I work for a big paper. Yeah, yeah. I'm working for the New York Herald Tribune. I oh, sit next yeah. to Red oh, Smith. Yeah. He was very impressed. Mm. Well, I had a lot of pigeon shit on some of the stuff that I wrote. I know that. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's hard to say. I know. I I used to read the alumni magazine when um, Hayes was coach. Mm -hmm. They were in a war with him. There was a guy who was the editor was in a war with him. Yeah, it's legendary. And he put a lot of pigeon shit on Hayes. Oh, yeah. First time I met Woody Hayes, I was on a big, I was at the Herald Tribune. I was in a Big Ten Skyriders tour of the Big Ten plus Notre Dame. It was 11 schools in five days. Five days, five or six. So we got to Ohio State. And, of course, he didn't want to see us. He, you know, he, 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 he was a prick. And, um, yeah, he, but he was going to be interviewed by another prick. Yeah, you're going to get me fired now, Jerry. So he's standing there, and he's got a player up talking to us, right? And he says, wait a minute, I'm going to prove you. Oh, we're talking about four yards in a cloud of dust, right? And um, he says, uh, come up here. One of his players. They'd had a scrimmage right before. The guy is bleeding here. He doesn't raise his hand. Not when, not when Hayes calls him up. He doesn't touch the blood. The blood all through the interview is running down his face. And and the guy is nodding his head in agreement with everything that Hayes says. And I wrote a column. It wasn't a column, man. It was a story about it. But uh, I said, they played, I think those days they played like nine games. 
Mm-hmm. He said nine games later, after watching this guy bleed, we'll find out whether Woody Hayes is a great coach or a pain in the ass. <laughs> tell it like it is, Jerry. He was a smart, I'll tell you, he was a great, when it came to history. Yeah. You know who knew more, the only coach I know I knew, ever knew who knew more history than him and knew more history than I did, which I would say is a lot of history, Marv Levy. Marv Levy with the Bills had a master's in American history. And the players loved him because his talks always centered around. So Benedict Arnold was over here. and I mean, that's the way he would talk. They loved it. And they, they would run through walls for him. And I really get pissed off. I think he may be one of the, one of the five or ten, five greatest pro football coaches. Because who got to the Super Bowl four straight years? Tell me that. I don't care whether they lost him. Who got there four years? Who got there three years? Right. And then it's you a one-day deal. He was an amazing right. guy. I liked him. I spoke to him. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. Talking about history, I mean, you covered Pele's last game at the Meadowlands in 78, right? The most dramatic thing I've ever seen in sports. Because he stood up there. He, it wasn't, it was an all-star game in which he played the first half with uh, the Cosmos. And the second half, um, with an all-star team made up of old teammates from other teams. And after the game, he stood up on this platform, 76,000 people. And he said, I, I came here because soccer is my life. Soccer is a beautiful game. And I think it's sad that the people of the greatest country in the world don't understand it. And he, did, and, and he did come for that reason, because I remember him when he was with the original, before he went to the Cosmos, he was with a team called the Generals, which the Cosmos absorbed. And he played a game in Rochester in a, in a stadium that looked like a stadium in Newark, walked in, there were nails in the wall, he hung his clothes up on the nail. He did, I mean, wow. And he was just into the game. Before he we went to the game, I walk into the Holiday Inn, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a team bus, I'm parking the Holiday Inn, we're in Rochester, and he's in the lobby with a guitar, and he's singing a stupid song, and he's pointing to people. When he does it, they have to sing La 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 back at him. He's got everybody fast. These are not players. These are people in the hotel. Da 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 da. La La La. Da 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 da. La La La. And someone says, hey, we got to get out of here. It's late. Okay. So we go to the bus, and just before, and most of them are on the bus now, and these two uh, I would call them old women then. They were probably in their 50s. And uh, not bad looking either. And uh, <laughs> one of them said to Billy, can we take your picture? Oh, oh, no, no, no. Mr. Ryder here will take your pictures with Pele. So I got to, all right, now I get, no, 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 son in the bed. Get on the other side of the bed. Now we got to go around it. He's directing this picture, you know. But that patience that he showed with these people, he was incredible. He was just a, he was a wonderful guy. I really, really liked him. So he's making this speech about why he was here. In 78, yeah, last game, Meadowlands. And then he says, and I want the children to have the opportunity to play this great game. And so I want to tell you what I think of the children, and I want you to tell me. So you repeat the words I say after me. And he says, love. And they yell, love, 76,000 people, love. 
He does it three times. And I'll tell you, I felt goose. I, I mean, if I were a decent person, I would have cried by then. Everybody else was. Uh, most emotional thing I ever saw. And then when I finally saw I saw him five years later, I said, we got to be good friends. He came back. He was working for uh, Coca-Cola, and they were sponsoring something. So I said, I'll do a piece of pellet here. So he says, you know, he says, I'll tell you a story. I tell nobody but you. His name is, his real name is Edson Arantes, right? And he said, uh, I couldn't accept that I was retired. So after that love, love, love speech, we went on a goodwill tour. The State Department sent us to Africa. And uh, we're playing Nigeria. And I couldn't resist. I jumped in the game. I had to play one more game. And I said, and how did Pele play? He said, he played like Edson Arantes. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I mean, you did so much more in your career. You know, like I mentioned, 53 Super Bowls, 55 Kentucky Derbies. I mean, Super Bowl, were you at the poolside with Joe Namath? <laughs> yeah, I was there. Were but you really? I, I never, when he made the well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wasn't in that big circle at the camera, you know. Right. I, I, and basically, uh, a lot of it was what did he say? What did he say? I never took any great credit for that. But um, uh, you see a lot. Of, you know how the world has changed. I can tell you in one quick story, quick, how the world has changed. Super Bowl, the first seven Super Bowls. I interviewed players in their hotel rooms. <laughs> Try it now. The, the NFL Gestapo won't let you on the same floor as them. Right. Now I'll tell you a quick story about the first Super Bowl. 1967, Packers versus Chiefs. E.J. Hollum, the beast, middle linebacker for the Chiefs. I had lunch with E.J. Hollum and, and rest his soul, Jack Murphy, uh, the uh, Sports editor San Diego, you and another one of my close friends. Um, the three of us had lunch in a Long Beach Hotel coffee shop two days before the thing. And I said to him, I guess you're a little nervous, huh? He takes his hands, puts them out like this, and says, feel my palms. They were soaking wet. Mm. And I said, is that because... Now you can prove yourself that you can play with these guys. And I was an idiot. I was, well, I didn't know anything. I was here. I was more than half my age. I was, yeah, I'm going to be 91. I was about 40. Uh, well, it was 1960. So I was about 37 years old. What kind of a thing is that? He's a pro. Why should he be? Why should he be? He said, no, that isn't why. If we win this game, the winning team gets $15,000 a man. That's tip money today for these guys, right? Right. He said, and my wife has spent it already. <laughs> now it's pressure. 
That is great. <laughs> well, well, you were a charter member of the Super Bowl Survivors Group, you called yourselves, the writers who all covered that first one. And, and Pete Rozelle used to, the commissioner, used to have you for dinner before the, uh, the Super Bowl, right? All the yeah, writers? Yeah, yeah. We, we got down to it. We got down to about 20. And uh, Rozelle had a, we're into the hotel ballroom. We had a party. And Joe Brown... Uh, who I love dearly. With the NFL. Was, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was a PR guy, but he was more than that. He, he came over to me and he said, would you respond to Pete's remarks as a, about you guys? Pete gets up and he says, what a great moment for me. What a great moment for football. What a great moment for all of us. You know, this is what we dreamed about. He said, it's hard for me to believe. But when I look around, I see some missing faces. Dick Connor from Denver had died that year. Mm. I see some missing faces, and I just, um, I'm wondering how, uh, how long it will all be here. Now I get up to respond. I said, hey, Roselle, with all due respect, really, with all due respect, what the hell kind of an outfit is this super club, and how do I get out of it? <laughs> You get up and you tell us we're all going to die. And you serve us cold hors d'oeuvres and watered-down drinks. I don't need to be in this club, and neither do you. <laughs> Pete, you know, I did a, 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 a... The reason I could do a biography of Rochelle, which was a really good book, was because we both were single fathers. We both had drunken wives. We both raised our kids. And so... It created a bond where we shared stories that he never told anybody else. What made Roselle such a great commissioner? One thing was the times. Because if the Roselle-Davis battle had been 15 years earlier, Davis wins. Because that battle would have been won by a football guy. Mm-hmm. Roselle was a PR guy. But he had experience. You know, He was the general manager of the Rams. But... But he was a PR guy, and his first six hires, when he became commissioner, by accident, by the way, 20-some-odd votes, his first six hires told you, if you were smart enough, and I wasn't, the direction football would go in. The first six all had PR experience, and they, no matter what job they were in, and it was amazing. He captured the newspapers in a way nobody ever did. His timing was impeccable. He let the AFL get a, a jump on signings even at one point because he had a gambling problem to deal with, with the Lions and Hornig and all that stuff. And he said, in my time, my place, I'll go get it, you know. And he got them. Um, the, the battle between them has one bright spot. The battle between Roselle and Oakland and Raiders. Davis. Well, whatever yeah, no, city no, they were in. No, <laughs> Al Davis. No, no. Dave, no, Davis. Right. Davis and him over the war between. No, this is before the first Super Bowl, before it was ever held. And um, he was a father during all of this, in which his, his daughter would hide behind a chair when his wife got out of control. And when, when, when Pete would come home from work, at that time it was a multi million dollar business, but that was pretty big, juggling all these problems, arguing with Lombardi worrying about the war between the leagues, the girl would run out from behind a chair and say, she had a bad day, which was the code word, watch your ass, is going to be trouble tonight. <laughs> I mean, that's the way, and I know because I lived the same thing. So, okay. So he would tell me things. 
Well, he wins this battle. He finally, he dies. And when he died, he wasn't looking for self-aggrandizement. He was looking to help the riders. He decided he wanted two memorials, one for East Coast riders, one for West Coast riders. So they wouldn't have to fly across the country to come to the memorial. All right. So they have it. And at the West Coast Memorial, the daughter speaks. She's a keynote speaker, of course. Now, she tells this story about her father. She wanted to show what a loving father he was, mm -hmm. wanted to show what a determined man he was. And in this one anecdote, she's got this story. It's Christmas, and she's like five or six years old. She wants a doll called Talking Barbie. Well, you know, I'll, I'll pick it up on my way to the office for next week or whatever. It's the hottest toy in the universe. <laughs> he can't find it anywhere. He's going to disappoint this little girl. His only, he, he, his only child at that point. He just, uh, what's he going to do? He calls a meeting of the marketing staff. He says, find me Talking Barbie. I got to have Talking Barbie. It's got to be under the tree Christmas morning. They can't find Talking Barbie. <laughs> Now, they're all on a mission to find this thing. Now it is Christmas Day, and little girl in her pajamas jumps up. There's the tree, and she sees at the bottom of the tree, what? Talking Barbie. She tells the story at the, at the wake shore. She picks up and hugs it. She pulls the string, and it says, Hola, donde esta Juan? It was, it, they got it in Venezuela. <laughs> It was talking Barbie. He spoke Spanish in Venezuela. He couldn't speak English. <laughs> she said, that's the kind of father I had. When that, and that ended it, right? And all these flash bulbs go off at once. And she, you know, she's got trouble focusing. Right. Someone is pulling her arm. She's on a, on a platform. It's Al Davis. She looks down at him and she's thinking, what is he doing? He, he's taking this moment for a photo op? What's wrong with him? And he says, Anne-Marie, with that accent, southern accent he cultivated in South Long Island, uh, Anne-Marie, you know, I always respected your father. No matter what people say, I respected him. And that's when she says, he's taking a photo op. People are taking our picture. And she's about to explode. And I said, so what happened? She said, I thought of what my father might do. So I looked down at him and I smiled. And that's how the book ends. And in that instant, she was definitely the commissioner's daughter. Right, right. Well, Roselle is the guy who basically took the NFL into the stratosphere and, um, you know, the Super Bowl that you saw fit the first 53 of is America's holiday day, basically. And you also are long associated with an event that's the nation's oldest continuously held sporting event, the Kentucky Derby. Now, Jerry, you didn't cover oh. the first one in 1875, did you? Who says I didn't? <laughs> I covered uh, all those derbies. 55 in a row. I'm still covering it. Remotely, here's what I do now. Like now that my walking problem has eliminated my traveling, I uh, I could call most people in the country and get an answer. Most people worth talking to. 
So like the last derby, I spoke to Wayne Lucas. I spoke to Bob Baffert. I spoke to Nick Zito. Right. I spoke to uh, a couple of jockeys. So I had a week's worth of columns. I watched the race on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I analyzed it. So it's not as good as being there. It isn't. I, and no matter what, you cannot put a Louisville Dateline on anything I write. I'm not going to fool anybody. I'm just trying to do it better than some other people. But you were still part of it. Still part of it. Yeah, very much so. All right, I'm going to hit you with the rapid-fire portion of our show with memories. Okay. And you did 55 derbies. You saw five triple crown runners. Think about that. I did I did over 40 uh, World Series and did about, about 25, 30 uh, NBA finals. Did a whole bunch of... Uh, of U.S. Open golf tournaments. Well, let me hit you with the derby first. All right, go ahead. You give me a favorite memory of a horse, a jockey, a trainer. What's the first thing that comes to mind about all those derbies? Canyonero 2. Canyonero 2 was a horse born in Kentucky with a crooked leg. Nobody in his right mind would have bought him. He winds up on a resale um, with a Venezuelan toilet seat maker uh, who takes him to Venezuela. Um, he can't win down in Venezuela. They have mile and a quarter races. They don't have them a, a lot here. And he wanted to win the Kentucky Derby, but he wanted to send him there. And so he said to his trainer, Juan Arias, the first black man since slavery to train in the Derby. He said to Juan, um, take him to Take him to Louisville. Let him run in the Derby. That's a mile and a quarter. We'll use it as a tightener. When the Kentucky hard boots see that they're using his Kentucky Derby for practice, you know, they go berserk. <laughs> and they charter a plane, and they're leaving from Venezuela. And they had trouble with the plane and back and forth. And finally, they take off. They get just before the point of no return. There's a bad engine. They turn around. They come back again. They leave the horse on the plane in the heat at that point. Uh, while they're repairing the plane again, they take off again. So they fly twice. They land in Miami, and, of course, the horse has to immediately go into quarantine. He's quarantined for a week. They let him out of quarantine on the eighth day, which is six days or, or seven days before the derby. And... Uh, Arias has got a job. Oh, this team, you love this team. Arias is the first black jockey. Avila Gomez is the jockey who flunked twice out of Venezuelan National Jockey School because he kept falling off the horse. Well, that's a problem. And then you got, and then you got the horse. So uh, he's told, the owner is told, I can get him on a flight. For, what flight? I spent enough money on that horse already. Put him in a truck, drive him to Louisville. He arrives right now, it's like five days before the race. He arrived. Everybody's laughing. Here's his horse trucks in five days before. Oh, and they know he had a crooked leg, and they know nobody in Kentucky wanted. It's, I wrote a piece saying, uh, talk about persistence. Talk about roses. That might be something else. <laughs> they break from the gate. He is dead last. Now, one or two other horses have done that, but he's also going to run on the outside. So, so there are 
There were 20 horses in the race, I think, that year, 20 and 21. It was a cavalry charge. Well, it always is. But now, because that race isn't won as much as it's lost, you lose it coming out of the gate when you get banged. Right. You lose it going into the first turn when you get get banged again because you got to get this too many horses and not enough room to come out of that into the into the turn. And then if you got a decent horse and you still survive, you got a chance, a chance. Well, this horse is in last place. I think there were 18 horses because he was in 18th. And he's running on the outside. He runs on the outside all the way around. It's like they started in Louisville. He started in Cincinnati. <laughs> Just keep adding feet for the amount of extra feet that he had to run. He wins the damn race. Everybody is stunned, right? And it's it's magnificent thing. After The hottest ticket in those days at the Derby was the trainer's party, the winning trainer's party. Oh, yeah. Nobody shows up. Avalok is there, and he runs down. He gets all the Latinos he can find on the backstretch. And the guys who are hot walkers, are like, they're going to go to the trainer's party, and they're going to eat that food. And they're all, they storm it, and they come in. Nobody is there who, who trained against them. Nobody. Hmm. And I, I strike up a friendship with him because that's my kind of guy. Plus the fact he was a poet. And I liked his poetry. I told him I thought he was pretty good. So, all right. So now uh, <laughs> he says, what are they saying about me and about the horse? They, tell me, they, they hate you. They hate you. You're, you're an imposter. You know, they want to tighten the immigration laws and keep people like you out. You beat all these Kentucky owners and these Maryland owners and and and, and these O line guys and the other and, and the regular jockeys and the, they hate you and they and they, one of one of them said to me where do we get to Pimlico he ain't coming from last place there that's a tighter tracking let's see what he can do there so he said I tell you what I'm gonna do he was a good guy I, he made a lot of columns for me I tell you what I'm gonna do. We're going to go from start to finish. We're going to lead all the way. You watch. And he did. And he won. Now he's got two-thirds of the Triple Crown. Mm-hmm. Now everybody's up in arms. <laughs> the New York Racing Association, you would think they haven't had a Triple Crown since, I don't remember who it was. The guy won it in 30, horse, horse won it in 38. And it's like 20-some-odd years. You would think, come and see history made at the Belmont. Do you think that would be the edge? Yeah, it's an easy sell. No, no. The edge is the test of champions, a mile and a half. They don't want this horse to win, and they don't even want to sell them. Everybody, every Latino, look how many Latino countries are represented in New York in driving distance. And so what happens is uh, they show up anyway. And I'm standing on the roof, looking down, looking down, at the walking ring where they walk the horses around after, right after they're saddled. There's a fence between the clubhouse and the uh, grandstand. On the grandstand side, hola, cañonero, and they're waving these banners. They didn't care what, Ecuador, like they're waving their own flags, but he's their horse, right? When the horse passes that barrier, here's the way they sit. They stand there. Arms folded, staring. That's the clubhouse gang. They don't want this guy to win. Turns out, which nobody knew, he had an equine disease called thrush. And 
they were going to pull him out of the race. Now, these people who wouldn't, didn't want him to win, oh, no, you can't pull out of the race. We got to have you. You're the triple crown. You won two-thirds of it. You got to run. You got So as a courtesy, he wins. He finishes fifth. And I remember the train, the guy in the press box, I won't use his name, local horse rider, turns and says, you see, I told you the son of a bitch couldn't train. And it was incredible to me. This horse went through so much. And uh, he was a hero to me. Other horses, the uh, best ride I ever saw was Shoemaker, who went from last to first. But what he did, he went through the whole pack. So he passed every horse, honey, in the middle of the pack. Unbelievable ride. Yeah, I hope I can walk once again. I mean, I can walk, but I hope I can walk well enough to go on the road and get in a derby crowd or whatever it is. But uh, I'm going to keep on going. You should. Because... Well, you know, uh, I love this business. I love Stanley Woodward. I love the great writers in this business. The Smith, you know, everybody says, because I kind of flowery with the language at time, everybody says, well, you, you got it from Red Smith. What I got from Red Smith was a license to use the English language. Hmm. We never did it. We wrote, it was a canto. It wasn't an ending. You know, it was a, it was a Homeric blast. It wasn't a Homer. It was, but Red wrote English. And I loved that. But the guy, and, and, I, and I had a traveling faculty, the last of the great ones. All, I was a kid. When I, when I became a columnist, I was the youngest national columnist in America, 32. All these old forts were helping me. They went out of their way. Frank Graham taught me the value of standing around a batting cage and listening to the conversation, right. which also I refined, yeah. I refined because I learned to speak Spanish and I never told them, and I could listen to the Latino players talking about the manager or whatever and know what they were saying. Right. Uh, uh, I, I, learned from, I learned from all of them, but the guy I learned the most from was Jimmy Cannon. Jimmy Cannon liked me because I chased fire engines like he did before we became sports writers. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I was a kid, a baby to him. And Jimmy, one day, here's when I learned about him about learning to make up your mind and to hear, to hear and see things. You got to hear. Most of my guys see, but they don't hear today. So I'm in a loser's dressing room at a, at a big heavyweight fight. And it was so heartbreaking that he lost. I forget what the fight was. Jimmy goes to the loser's room and I go to, there's about four or five guys in the loser. Everybody's in the winner's room. And some imbecile says to the fighter, did you see the punch that knocked you out? <laughs> and Cat Cannon says, idiot, if he saw the punch, we'd be in the other dressing room. <laughs> That's how I learned. And I, I don't see people enough. There are guys out there. I see some good ones who can write. But most people get into it because they want to get, they want to jump from the newspapers to Television. I can. I will not name anybody, but oh, I can think yeah. of at least. You know, I can think of at least six guys whose newspaper work was so defective that one of the copy readers, I won't name the town, told me nothing ever went in the paper the way he wrote it. And this guy's <laughs> a big star now. Hey, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors, right? Well, it, 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 but it's it's yelling. How the, the legacy of Howard Cosell is not honest, but the legacy of Howard Cosell is how he asked the questions. Eddie Stanky, I'm going to ask you a question that nobody has had the guts to ask you before, but I'm going to ask it. And you better tell the truth. 
is it raining outside? I mean, it's how you, t- that's what they learn from it, how you, right. uh, they, when they interrogate people, they wouldn't do their homework. They wouldn't find out who is this guy, what are you, my always, I taught journalism at a summer camp for overprivileged children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm teaching them how to do mass interviews. And I'm teaching how you do it. I'm First, I'm teaching them how to do interviews, which is a pretty difficult job with what the kind of education they're getting in school. How many times have you seen an interviewer with a clipboard on his or her lap and the guy is answering the first question? He says, I want to make a statement. He says, I couldn't stand her. Yeah, I did kill her. I couldn't stand her. I hated her. I went to the basement. I got an axe. I came up and I split her skull. And then the interviewer says, looks at the list. Oh, you went to Oberlin University, didn't you? (laughs) I rest my case there. I rest my case. And somebody said to me, you know, you could save yourself a lot of work. There's, you could pick it up off the internet. And you, I said, I, I could I read the internet. That doesn't mean I use necessarily what I, do you understand if you make a mistake, young writer, and you will make a lot of them because I made a lot of them. You make a mistake. It lives forever on the internet. Nobody corrects anything. It's there. Right. Hey, Jerry, before we wrap this up, I I wanted to ask you about one person. um, And the reason I want to ask this is because a theme throughout all of your great career, when I look at it, is social justice. Yep. And the person I want to ask you about is Larry Doby. And Larry Doby broke the color barrier in the American League in 1947, a few months after Jackie Robinson. And you got to know Larry Doby very well because he lived in Montclair, New Jersey. Um, What did Larry mean to you? And do you think Larry has ever really been given, you know, the acclaim that that he should have gotten for doing the same thing Jackie did? Not to to take anything away from Jackie. I'm just saying Larry seems to be lost. but But Larry had it harder. Let me tell you something about that. Now, I'm not knocking Jackie. I mean, Jackie did was incredible. Right, right. That's not the point, yeah. Nevertheless, Jackie had a team. Brand Tricky said, you don't want to play with this black guy? I'll trade you. He had a team that supported him. When they threw at him, his team supported him. Dobie goes to join the Indians. Vec is not there. Vec was probably the patron saint of baseball if they listen to him enough. And he wasn't there. He let Boudreaux, who didn't want him, the manager, playing manager, introduce him. 25 guys, two equipment managers, four coaches, and a manager. Three guys shook his hand. Everybody else turned and faced the wall when he was brought around. Mm. He went in to change into his uniform. He never had really run into discrimination because he came from Patterson, New Jersey. All of his games were integrated or, you know, he then... uh, uh, he even went a year at Long Island University. But when he uh, changed his clothes, he, he didn't have a locker. They were, because they were a visiting team and they hadn't updated the roster. So he changed his clothes in the men's room, went on the field, and he hears this familiar sound, which is balls hitting gloves. They're all throwing the ball back and forth. He steps out of the dugout shadow. Nobody will throw him the ball. Nobody. And he says, I'm going home. I don't need this shit. And just then, somebody punches him right here on the side. But it's not a punch. It's kind of a love tap. It's Joe Gordon 
I'm happy to say my boyhood hero because he played second base for the Newark Bears in the International League, went to the Yankees, and in the end, in the twilight, was traded to the Indians. And he looks at Doby and he says, hey, hey, rookie, you want to warm up or are you going to stand here and profile in your uniform? Mm-hmm. That started a lifelong friendship between those two guys. Lifelong. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I, I became a Doby I understood Doby by accident. I'm an established columnist. I'd see him, you know, he was living in my home. It wasn't my hometown, really. Well, it was. I was stayed there like two years. He was living there. But he, my paper was his hometown paper. Right, Newark. I didn't realize. He read me in the off-season all the time. And he liked the stands that I made for different things. I didn't know that. My doorbell rings one day. It's a winter. There's snow on the ground. He says to me, What do you drink? Well, without telling you, making too many confessions, I will tell you, I was not always a fine, upstanding citizen that you see before you now. I was kind of a bum for a long time. So I gave him an honest answer. If it's wet, I'll drink it. Larry said, I'll be here at 7 o'clock tonight with a bottle of scotch. I go get another bottle of scotch, take it out of it, put it on the table. 7 o'clock, Larry rings the doorbell. I'm on my way to a divorce anyway, so I answer the door. <laughs> I go to the kitchen, put the other bottle out there. There's two bottles now. We did not get up from those kitchen chairs until the sun came up. And one bottle was gone, and a third of another bottle was left. He told me everything that had happened to him in his life that was bad. Mm-hmm. Everything was, I'm talking about a catharsis. I have no idea why he chose me. I have no, I would see him, they'd play the Yankees 11 times. They were lousy most of the time. And, and part of that time, the Yankees were lousy. So I'd go maybe four times a season, maybe, maybe less. Hi, Larry. Hi, Jerry. That was it. Now he's telling me, he tells me everything. He tells me what it was like when the team turned on him. He tells me that three years after, three years after he was an Indian, and they had Satchel in, and they had Luke Easter, who they then got rid of. So it might have been, might have been two blacks only on his team. I don't know, him and another guy. Art Dittmar, I, I shouldn't name him, but I will. He says Art Dittmar always threw in his head. But Art Dittmar, he, say, he says, threw behind him, which just means you're trying to hit a guy in the head because it's a reflex action, pull mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. He he Dittmar now has become a Yankee, third, two, second, third team. He was a good pitcher. He doesn't brush him back from the plate. He throws the ball behind his head. Larry said, that's it. Drops the bat, goes out to the mound. Larry was a powerful guy. A lot of baseball players could be happy today that Larry didn't have a hair-trigger temper. Mm -hmm. He belts Dittmar and knocks him on the ground. The Yankees are all over Adobe. They're all piling on top of Adobe. There's a space between legs at the bottom of the pile. And he looks up and he sees third year in baseball. Walt Dropo leading the charge from the dugout. And all these white guys coming to defend him. And he said, and when he told me the story, he said, after three years, I finally had teammates. They hired a guy in St. Louis to stand 
in the first row over the batter circle. When Larry was in it, you know, he's nigger, 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 and this and that. And Larry said, I didn't mind that stuff. I heard that so many times before I got to St. Louis. What was it? It didn't matter to me. But he, Larry's wife, Helen, spells her name an odd way. He announces, he's got a megaphone. He announces how she spells her name. And he said, let me tell you what she did for me in my hotel room last night. That's it. Hmm. That's it. Larry's going in the stands. Hmm. And he didn't need the bat. He's got one leg over the railing. Suddenly, he's flying backward through the air. He's on the ground, and there's a man on top of him. And the guy is the batting coach. Um, I don't remember his name at the moment. He was the batting coach. And he was one of the guys that shook Larry's hand. And he said, Larry, don't you move. You get up, you'll never play. You go in that great stand, you'll never play another game of baseball. But the American League will not get another black for 10 years because they don't want him. Beck is the only one who wanted you. Hmm. Saved his career. He laid there. Larry had a tough, tough life, a wonderful And his life got better. We did, Larry did so many things that I, I really, I remember when I had Project Pride, which is my, my group for the kids in Newark, uh, we played a football game, Army, Navy, JVs, for 29 years. But for four years, I had a man of the year dinner. After that, I ran out of friends. I had Ali. <laughs> I had Parcells. I had uh, someone else. And then I had, and I had Dobie. And then I ran out of friends. But Dobie comes, comes to the dinner, and I introduce him with a really fiery, because he was my friend by then. I mean, really, my, he's my wife's friend. He was... We, we just got to his wife and my wife used to. They sat in the lobby of the Hall of Fame when I arranged uh, a tour for Dobie, who had never been and was going to be inducted the next day. And I got to tell you, I won't get into it, but I take personal satisfaction in that I helped get him in after all those years. Well, I know that. And I know that you were instrumental in getting him into the well, Baseball but, Hall of Fame. But anyway, Larry... Um, he he went through all that, but he was he just, so he gets up at my dinner and afraid, he's getting a standing ovation, and he says, "Wow!" He says, "I'm impressed. Where were all of you in 1947 when I was having a little bit of trouble?" Exactly. He was marvelous. I, I love the man. He was good. And I, I will tell you, I, I got to tell you this, Chris. I'm working on a book right now about Larry Doby, and it's going to be. I use a working title. It's not going to be the title of the book. But he's a working title to keep myself focused on what I want to bring out. And it's Larry Doby, The Pain of Being Second. That's the theme of the book. Mm. Hey, I'm, I'm busy. I'm productive. I finished another book yesterday, uh, which is called Josh Gibson Remembers a Ghost Story. It's a story of black baseball told through the eyes of six guys who played in the Negro Leagues, who were a friend of mine. And you actually and, saw Josh Gibson play. Think oh, about yeah, that. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, I saw, I saw a lot of guys. I did not see John McGraw when he played. Uh, <laughs> Abner and, Doubleday, I mean, you uh, were good friends with Abner. Oh, uh, I didn't like Abner at all. I, mean, <laughs> I don't like that town that much. So, you, listen, he could have put the damn thing in Bayonne, New Jersey, or Newark, you know. Didn't do it. That's where the Hall of Fame should have been. Anyhow... I feel very strongly about what I've done. Not, not, not look at me patting myself on the back. It's what I want to do. I, got, I really believe at 89 when I finished the novel, I didn't want to die 
But that was something I was not going to die before I finished that novel. And I, there's so much more I want to do. Uh, I have this book coming out. I'm finishing a book up, which is four chapters short of the end, called Growing Up Jewish in Newark, New Jersey, which is the funniest book I have ever written in my life. <laughs> uh, my, my mother's war with the IRS. And uh, my, my father was an old ball player, you know, minor league ball player. And he finally gets my mother to a ball game. She hates baseball. Finally gets into a ball game. We have to go to Scranton, Pennsylvania, where he has some friends. He doesn't tell her we're going to see the, the, the Scranton Barons play, Wilkes-Barre Barons play that night. We get up there. She's really mad. And I s- said to her, I don't think you should say anything. It's a big night for him. So she's <laughs> sitting on the other side of me. And uh, three up, three down. The other team comes in, three up, three down. The home team goes out. She says, okay, we saw this part. Let's go. The start of the second inning. It's the same thing we saw last inning. Why are we sitting here right now? Uh, and But uh, it's a funny book. And it, when I get that done, I, I'm going to get on Dobie. I got two more I want to do. One is a, uh, one is, is a, um, a horse race book. It's very funny. Uh, and the final one will be called Made in America. And it's about all the prejudice I've seen since I was seven years old. And it toppled my father's grandson tombstone and put a swastika on it. And it goes to all the things I've seen, all the things my Afro-American wife has seen, all the things we saw together. And the last chapter, I will say, is called Charlottesville. And you guys can figure that one out. Well, you've seen so much. And readers and viewers and sports fans in general have been so lucky to have you for the past 70 years chronicling the greatest moments in history. Listen, I'm luckier to have had them. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Huffman, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. 
Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 